There's an unquestionable excitement connected to the first day of the week, isn't there? The opportunity to come together, a renewal of the week, a renewal of ourselves in the sense of the Lord's day and that which we can do to redirect our attention always to those things of eternal significance. The Word of God stands unaltered. 1 Peter 1.25 still reminds us, The Word of the Lord endureth forever. It's so good for us to be able to come together this Lord's Day morning, to sing these songs of encouragement and praise, to pray to our Heavenly Father, to enjoy fellowship one with the other. In addition to all of that, to reflect upon a portion of the Word of God. May I encourage you to turn to that 20th chapter of the Revelation, and we'll use that as the basis for our lesson this morning as we come to the second Sunday in the month of November. On the second Sunday of each month throughout the entirety of this present year, we have devoted a lesson to the fundamentals, if you will. And over the course of that time, we've reconsidered the existence of God, the existence of the Lord, the existence of the church, the matters connected to the plan of salvation, issues such as faith, and we come today to the day of judgment. As you can see on that slide before you, that's really a part of the title. This opening slide will really just be a very gentle introduction as we make recognition of this fact, the idea connected to the judgment is one that appears on so many pages in the Word of God, so many verses, so many matters connected directly to it. I finally selected the 20th chapter of Revelation. I suppose as you and I come to verses 11 to 15 in just a minute, we'll be able to be reminded one last time about the nature of that. In some ways, this is the final occurrence in all the Bible of the, at least the great details connected to the day of judgment. May you and I never lose sight of the existence of that day to ensure that we're prepared for it so that that day will be a day of smoothness and joy because as certainly you and I well know for those unprepared, words would fail us to, come to at least, I think, express how awful that day will be. One last thing about that opening slide though is this. The day of judgment is such a critical part of the Word of God that it's a reminder that our God is a God of judgment. And without any further ado, let's leap right in then to verse number 11. Because I chose to divide the lesson today by verses. Let's in fact take verse 11 for a moment. We'll pause and make several comments and discussion points about it, and then we'll move to the verses that follow it. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now I realize we're picking up certainly in the midst of a chapter, and furthermore we're picking up in the midst of many other things, such as near the end of the book of Revelation. But I think you and I can do well justice to appreciate the placement of what's now before us. And so it is on that slide that you can now see. It's rather easy to note what it is that John saw. As the angel revealed to John, who in turn wrote these matters down and they shared them by virtue of that writing for all in the future time, such as you and me to behold, John says he saw something. I saw a great white throne. Now you and I might take note that as the book of Revelation shares with us a number of things that John saw, and they're all amazing fascinating, sometimes phenomenal. And yet, as we notice here, a throne. But it is said to be great, and it is said to be white. 
White reminds us of the purity connected to the judgment that will in fact be uttered therefrom. And the fact it's great reminds us that this is no ordinary court of appeal. And it is no ordinary matter for some of the greatness connected to that judgment is not easy to be understood. Notice what follows. And him that sat on it. John witnessed by virtue of this presentation the absolute grandeur of the one resting upon this throne and the one who is going to utter the verdict of the judgment. In John 5 verse 22, the God of heaven decreed His Son was going to be the one to actually carry out the judgment. That is to say, the Lord Jesus Christ will be the one pronouncing the verdict. We are told in 1 Timothy 2 5, He's the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Not only a mediator, He can thus occupy a role of identifying perfectly with each side. He lived among us upon earth. Never did any sin, Hebrews 4.15. And of course, He's also God in the flesh. God with us, Matthew 1.23. Therefore, His judgment will be ideal. It would be foolish to hope that there's going to be a mistake. It would be foolish to hope that by some means His judgment will be anything other than the absolute correct one. You may notice next on that slide that this verse 11 goes on to say this from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. How majestic. How enthralling. How incredibly intriguing. The earth and the heaven fled away. That appears to be a recognition and a statement of the fact that's uttered in other places in the Word of God, such as these. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. To borrow the words of 2 Peter 3 verse 10. Isn't it interesting here, it says they fled away. No longer could there be confidence, you see, or even a reality of dwelling in them or on them. They are no more. They fled away. It's an interesting reminder. It says, there was found no place for them. Now, not only that particular recognition, if you like to jump forward to verse 1 of chapter 21, don't you find it interesting that this is now what is stated? I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because this former one, the first heaven and first earth, were passed away. Well, notice we've just now read, before the face of this great one, the one resting upon that great white throne, it says the earth and the heaven fled away. And now we appreciate the reality, the wonderful understanding connected with a new one, a place where dwelling can take place, because it won't be this one. There have been several religious groups who, in fact, have done great error by asserting that there's going to be a remade earth, a renewed earth, some kind of a reconsidered one. The Bible just doesn't teach this. May I point out back in verse number 11 of chapter 20 that the first word of that verse, which I thought we might want to consider, is and. This is a continuation of a development that had already been begun. It had been stated in the previous verse, maybe we would do well to notice the place this comes. Look at verse number 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, 
where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That enemy of God, that enemy of mankind, that old dragon that's described earlier in this book of Revelation, you notice that he, at this point, has now been overcome. And you'll notice he has been cast, verse 10, into that lake burning with fire and brimstone. What an awful end for any being to be cast there. And yet the infinite judgment of God has decreed that not only is the dragon there, that devil, but the beast is there, the false prophet is there. Those who have had the audacity to war against the perfectness and the completeness of the truth of God, they find themselves in this kind of described place. The day of judgment, certainly a reality, doesn't it cast a strong spotlight on the reality of accountability? I know that sometimes we in our life are certainly able to witness in the lives of others that they seemingly feel as if there's no accountability. I can live the way I want and you can't say anything about it. Excuse me. We know that God can and He will. The deeds of everybody are going to be brought to bear on that notable day of judgment. And in the reality of that occurrence, then one will have to answer for the deeds done in the body. As you go forward on this slide, might we notice that other passages remind us about the sheer greatness of this judgment. I pointed out earlier today in that text of John 5, 22, the one that will be taking care of this. But don't, don't you find it intriguing that one of the last statements the Apostle Paul ever made in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Paul, immediately following that, would say, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. But you'll notice that which preceded it was this, The Lord Jesus Christ will judge the quick, the living, and the dead. As you and I close that slide, we have thus begun a consideration of Revelation chapter 20, verse number 11. What about verse number 12? How does it continue? It continues exactly like this. This is the one Brother Josh read just a moment ago. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. One more time, why don't we consider some of the elements of that passage and begin at the very outset, I saw the dead. Which ones, John? Small and great. Everybody's going to be there. May we never hold out hope there's going to be exemptions for some. May we never hold out hope that some will be able to avoid or evade that event. That word small and that word great indicates those who occupied positions perhaps by the esteem of some as being small or those that were occupying positions that might be esteemed as great. It doesn't matter. All will be there. Isn't that a rather powerful reminder of, again, some other ways that's portrayed? In Matthew 25, verse 32, as Jesus gave His portrayal description of the judgment, He said, All nations will be there. How many, Lord? All of them. Nobody exempted. Nobody out of bounds. 
nobody able to avoid the greatness of that judgment. Isn't it intriguing then as you look forward in verse number 12? John says, I saw them stand before God. What a frightening moment for some. Imagine those that have claimed to be atheists standing for the one who they denied that even existed. Think about those who lived as an infidel or as an agnostic who never thought they were, could be sure that he existed and it's standing right in front of him now. You see, a whole lot of things are going to drop away into absolute nonsense at that point. Many who have ordered a life in a way that certainly they may have known the truths of the Word of God and yet chose to live in another way, they'll surely recognize the abject foolishness of choices then. And to understand that it was never worth it. It was never something that was the right choice while upon earth. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Aren't you thankful that John was told, John, what you see... Write in a book. So you and I then, through the character of our reading and imagination, we too can picture this. Verse 12 now goes on to say this. Not only did John see them standing there, he says the books were opened. John apparently saw the opening of some books at this point. I wonder what books they were. I wonder what books they shall be. And I wonder how that, of course, impacts you and me. I've asked you to note some things on that slide. First of all, you and I would well note that our God will always do what's right in terms of judgment. Genesis 18.25 began the Bible in many ways with that observation. The judge of the earth will always do what's right. His judgment is keen. His judgment is right. His judgment is correct. There's a standard for this judgment. God's judgment's not going to be, shall we say, capricious. It will not be that which is trivial. It will not be that which is unfounded. What about those who live such as, let's say, Abraham? He never lived beneath the law of Jesus Christ. He died long before Jesus ever came to the earth. There will be a patriarchal law below which, beneath which Abraham, for instance, shall be judged. And that same is true of Noah. That same is true of Adam. That same is true of Jacob and Isaac and several others. No doubt, one of the things open shall be books characteristic then, descriptive of that below beneath which they will be judged. But then there will be those who lived under the law of Moses. Law of Moses will be opened, and they will be judged out of those kinds of things. Those ancient Jews, susceptible to what was, you see, taught in Exodus 20 and beyond. That kind of book, you see, will be appropriate for their judgment. But that still isn't you or me. And then there will be Christians. There will be those living this side of the cross, whether Christians or not. And they will be judged out of the law of Christ. Did they, did they commit to it? Did they obey it? Did they live in harmony with it? If so, what a joyous and wonderful verdict of judgment should be given. If not, we're about to see what happens. But isn't it interesting, the books will be opened. You and I place a lot of confidence in books, don't we? 
We can learn in them pieces of information, perhaps connected to your line of work, maybe connected to other things of interest, such as a hobby. And then there are books like the Word of God, which stands unequaled. There will be no physics books opened at the Day of Judgment, though that happens to be my career. There will be no mathematics books opened. There will be no mechanics books open that tells us how to fix a car. There will be no cookbooks open that reminds us how to make a cake. The books that will be open will be the ones determining your eternal destiny and mine. Books below which presented the standard that you and I were to live by. Aren't you so thankful that we have it here? We don't have to worry about showing up there and be judged by something we never had. We have it. All things that pertain to life, and godliness, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, are available to you and me. Our God wouldn't be equitable or fair if He judged us based on something we didn't have. Isn't it interesting that this verse goes on to say this, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The Word of God also shares and testifies to you and me a number of features about that book of life. We recall that Moses made mention of it back in Exodus 32. We notice also that Malachi made reference to it in Malachi 3. Paul could speak with confidence of it in regard to the church at Philippi in Philippi and Philippians chapter 4. And now John, one last time, brings before us the reminder of the book of life. If you'd wish to go ahead and look forward to verse 15, we'll return to this shortly, but it seems so proper to notice it even at this point. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Could I urge all of us to cement in our thinking the significance of making sure that our name is in the book of life. That's where the saved's names are located. If your name is there, you're saved. If your name's not there, you're lost. It's that simple. It is that simple. No more complication needs to be asserted with respect to it. And yet, to have our names there, we understand that it is vital. And the only way to have it put there is for the Lord to write it there. You and I cannot write it there. The angels cannot write it there. The other beings in heaven are not able to do it. Only the Lord. In Acts 2 verse 47... The Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. When a person obeys the gospel, at that moment, the Lord, by declaration of the saved, then puts your name into the book of life. And we learn in Revelation 3, He can't erase names out of that book. Absolutely. That doctrine of once saved, always saved is as wrong as it ever was. The Bible never taught it. Despite the fact many of our Baptist friends choose to cling to it. That text in Revelation 3 reminds us then we must be faithful until death, Revelation 2.10, to make sure our name continues to be written in that book. As you revisit verse number 12 with me, it says, And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. You'll notice one last thing then about that slide is that you and I, each of us, will thus be judged on that great and notable day 
based on our works, not our intents. Doesn't matter what I intended to do. That won't cut it. Doesn't matter what ideas you or I may have had. Did we do it? Did we follow through? Didn't James write in James 1.22, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. As the pronouncement thus on that final day, this day of judgment is set forth, everyone judged according to their works. Paul echoed that sentiment with such greatness in Romans 14.12, didn't he? So then every one of us shall stand before God. We'll each give accounting. We'll each be judged on that occasion. That, that remind us one last time about the individuality of this. I won't stand there for my parents, for my wife, for others, and neither shall you, nor will others be able to take your place or mine. Perhaps it's in that light we're prepared for verse 13. As we turn to that 13th verse, now John writes for our benefit, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Some of these matters we have at least begun to note in some previous verses, but isn't it interesting to note the clarity as well as the strength connected to it? First, in verse number 13, the sea. You and I know quite well that the specific way in which a person may well pass away could be a rather extensive thing. Many have died at sea. You'll notice here even the sea gave up the dead which was in it. Think for just a moment. We all know what happens, at least in most cases, when an individual passes away at sea or when their body makes its way to the depths of the ocean. It, of course, would be consumed by various forms of marine life, undergoing the decay processes that take place there, and yet there is still a recognition of an understanding that there will be an appearance that day. A body prepared for the moment of this will have been provided. Though the physical body may long since have been decayed and no longer in existence, you and I realize from 1 Corinthians 15 that there has already been a description of the fact that a body will be available and provided. We need not then fear about that. Back to verse 13. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Death is a certain appointment if the Lord delays His coming. None of us will be able to avoid it. None of us will be able to somehow sidestep it. There are no loopholes. Modern medicine will never figure out a way to do away with death. It's that simple. Though our medical friends can try and we're thankful for their efforts to help improve the quality of our life for a longer number of years, they shall never do away with death, for it is this decree, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 even those great people of the early days of the book of Genesis, they may have lived in some instances close to a thousand years, yet they too passed away. You and I know today that the sentence of that still rings so beautifully from verses like Psalm 90, verse number 10, where the days of our life may be threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength perhaps fourscore years, yet... Is there strength sorrow, and we are soon cut off, or we fly away? 
You and I know this. And so how vital it is to make sure that we live wisely. Under the banner, Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. Understanding, you see, that as we walk circumspectly, that's the way we make sure that our name remains in that book of life. Nextly, in that same 13th verse, did you notice it not only mentions death, but it also has the word hell. Now that word there is the rendering of the word that's Hades. And we know that's the realm of departed spirits. When an individual passes away, we know the body, of course, is buried, or in some other ways, it precedes its decay back to the dust. But yet the spirit does not die. Spirits don't die. They merely go back to God that gave them. And at least we appreciate the existence of that place of departed spirits, that realm known as Hades, spoken of in several places in the Word of God. We know that there's a place, Jesus, of course, referred to it while hanging on the cross. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The Lord may have been dying on the cross, but even after He died, yet His Spirit was alive and well in a place called paradise. And not only that, that thief was there as well. But we also know that there's another place that's not so comfortable. The rich man went there in Luke 16. Under the description of that place, he opened his eyes in torment. He opened his eyes in a very unpleasant, unfavorable place. And it's a place where, in fact, it was such that he desired that his tongue might be cooled by just a drop from the finger of someone who could offer it. Aren't we reminded then that judgment's a serious matter? As you and I revisit verse 13, it says that death and Hades delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Judged every man according to their works. If you'd wish to do so, you can turn over two more chapters to Revelation 22, and look with me at verse number 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. That's only two occasions of so many others in which the Word of God reminds us about not only the reality of the judgment, but what shall occur and take place at that time. On earth, we're quite comfortable, at least with the reality of judgment. Maybe a person stands before a police officer, and you're judged to have exceeded the speed limit. Or maybe you stand before another judge who, in fact, makes a decree relative to the estate of a deceased person. Or maybe you stand before some other person of authority who makes a judgment about what you have or have not done. But all of that will pale in comparison to this. As you and I stand before the one who knows everything about our life, what we did and didn't do, And aren't we thankful for the opportunity to have forgiven all those things in which we failed? As we turn our attention to verse 14, let's do that by transitioning to this slide and note this reading. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so now we have a reference in the imagery of what John saw. He saw death and Hades cast into the lake of fire. Now that lake of fire is what we mentioned earlier. It's already mentioned as this place where the beast, 
for the dragon, where again, these who oppose the nature of the God of heaven are, and now he says death is there. You may, I might first remember that, didn't Paul write in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There'll be no more death at this point. And yet death is there, and we notice that that realm of departed spirits is there. It'll be emptied by this time, admittedly. So there'll never be any more need for it. There'll never be anybody again to die whose spirit needs to go to a place called Hades. And we see that both of them cast into the lake of fire. What a fantastic occasion. The ending of death, that matter, you see, that's so often been a matter of observation, a reality to which we've become accustomed. One last thing, this is given a name. This is the second death. The second death. So you and I know the first death may well correspond in our observation to that physical passing from this life, which we've already learned all of us shall do if the Lord delays His coming. There's a first death. But you also notice here's a reference to a second death, which is far worse. This death, as described here, is this casting into this lake of fire. It is this place of torment. It is this place, you see, that has an eternal separation from all that is love based on God, all that is peaceful and tranquil based on God's provision, and all that is of the goodness connected to Him. None of it's going to be here in this place that is the second death. The shocking, scary, frightening consideration of this should prompt anybody to walk in faithfulness. The Word of God so strongly motivates every person who at least thinks soundly about the nature, first, of what Jesus did for us, the wonderful abode of those who are the faithful, and how awful the abode is of those that are not. What three strong encouragements, motivations, and incentives to live rightly. As we close the 14th verse, this is the second death, but one verse remains in this chapter at least. Let's transition to that one and note this. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That lake that's already been under discussion. That lake where death was cast. That lake where Hades was cast. That lake where the devil is. That old beast, that one described as a dragon back in Revelation 12. The false prophets are there. Revelation chapter 19, verses 20 and following. Now we begin to see one final observation of who was cast there. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life. May have been a good person on earth, just never obeyed the gospel. May have been a kind neighbor just never obeyed the gospel. May have been a dutiful person by way of talents, but never obeyed the gospel. Or if they did, didn't stay faithful to it. You see, there's a, anybody, regardless of the circumstances, or regardless of what else might be said about them, if their name's not in that book of life, they're lost. They're lost. I would suggest to each of us that this 20th chapter of Revelation in some ways, is the darkest, scariest, most frightening chapter in all the Word of God. 
because it portrays what will be the case for the vast majority of every human being that's ever walked this planet. I say that because in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said this, Enter ye into the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The Lord said there'd be few that would be saved. May God bless us in such a way that we in wisdom ensure that we are numbered among those few. And yet, so that that day will be a day of happiness, a day of joy, a day of gladness, a day of understanding as we stand before the One who died for us, just exactly what He accomplished on our behalf. Because He paid the price that we need not go to that lake of fire. You may notice that on that description, on that page, I've at least reminded us of this. One of the features that we find otherwise, and it was highlighted there in verse number 10, that the duration of this place is forever and ever. One of the greatest dangers that probably afflicts all of us is we perceive how tough we are, and we perceive that we can withstand anything, at least for a while. And no doubt we can. We probably, each of us, have endured pain for a while, and perhaps it was quite, quite intense. I hope we never lose sight of the fact. In hell, there'll be no choice. But may we not overestimate our toughness and think somehow we can deal with that place, because it'll never end. Never end. Never a time when it'll get eased. Never a time to obey the gospel then. Never a time to make a prayer for some relief. There won't be any. It'll continue unabated never to be altered. It's hard to wrap our mind around infinity. But brethren, we've got to try. Because we don't want to go to the place we've just read about. We do not want to go there, and we need to recognize anything in this life is worth our attention and our obedience to keep us out of it. Didn't the Lord say, if you have two eyes, better to put one of them out and go through life with one eye than to have both of them cast into hell. If your hand offends you, better to cut it off and go through life without it. If that hand is going to lead you to be cast into hell, better to cut off one foot than to have both of them cast into hell. There's coming a day of judgment. And aren't we thankful the Bible has told us about it so we can be ready. There'll be no real surprises that day. Not any. But it'll be a final verdict of the absolute nature of things, and our Lord will never make a mistake in that proclamation. As we close this lesson today, we do so by reminding ourselves of some of the things that close that 15th verse on the slide before you. That verdict that's rendered that day will be non-negotiable. It'll be undiscussable. There will be no court of appeals. There'll be no opportunity to get it reversed. Sometimes in the courts of men, we know all of those things happen. Or you can plead for mercy on the part of the judge. And it's true from Revelation 6, there will be many that will try that. They're going to pray for the rocks to fall upon them because they know they're not ready. There will be no rocks to fall. Nothing else to do but to stand there and to appreciate the choices that were made and the verdict that's now rendered. On this conclusion slide then, 
That day will be a wonderful day for those ready. And don't you know that Paul was excited when he even thought about it in 2 Timothy 4? He could say in chapter 1 of that book, I know whom I believed. He knew it. And in chapter 4, I fought a good fight. I finished my course and I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. You see, Paul didn't have any fear about that day. He earlier would say in the Philippian letter, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He knew that things better for him awaited. But you know, there are also those we read about in 2 Thessalonians 1. Those verses, of course, are about as frightening as the ones we've studied today because they read like this. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's the part we do not want to experience. Today, if there's anyone in this assembly, and your life is such that you're not on the side of this that would be the favorable side, your name is not in the book of life at this moment, then why do you delay? What possible reason could there be is anything on earth worth this? The choice is yours and mine. If you'd like to respond to the gospel invitation, the Lord loves you, and He wants you to be saved, and He wants to write your name in the book, and He's ready to do it. But you need to make the decision such that He can. In response to that gospel invitation, believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If you have known that kind of life, and for a while your name was in that book, but it has since been erased, don't you want it put back in there? Don't again you want to enjoy the same kind of hope and power that you once knew? We today would be honored to celebrate, to rejoice with you as the Lord writes your name again, but you've got to repent of those sins. Make confession of them. And we would be delighted to approach God in prayer with you so that that forgiveness would be taken care of. Today, we'd love to be of assistance in any way that we can, and to do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.